Hello, and thank you for tuning into Answers from the Lab, where we share Mayo Clinic knowledge and advancements on the state of testing and science from laboratory leaders and the people who are making it happen behind the scenes. I'm Dr. Bobby Pritt, your host, and the clinical microbiologist and the chair of the Division of Clinical Microbiology at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. For today's episode, we welcome Delta Lane from our product management team at Mayo Clinic Laboratories for a test and focus interview. Dr. Pritt, thank you for that introduction. And Dr. Snyder, thank you for taking time out of your schedule today to join us in discussing Mayo Clinic Laboratory tests, specifically IBDP2. Before we get started today, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and your role here at Mayo Clinic? Sure. Well, I'm really happy to be here, so thank you for inviting me. My name is Melissa Snyder, and I am one of the laboratory directors for the Antibody Immunology Laboratory at Mayo Clinic. Our laboratory focuses on autoimmune uh, diseases. Primarily, we focus on autoantibody serology. These are diagnostic markers that are useful in a variety of different autoimmune conditions, not only GI, but we deal with rheumatologic conditions, hematologic, and, and other clinical areas as well. We do expand a little bit beyond autoantibody serology, and there are some novel markers that are of interest in autoimmunity, but that's really the focus of, of my laboratory, which is to identify and, and make sure we understand the most up-to-date and cutting-edge diagnostic and prognostic markers that we can use for patients with autoimmune disease. Great. Thank you for providing your background. I really appreciate you sharing that with us because I think it's very helpful for our audience to understand that should they ever call into the Mayo Clinic for assistance with consultations on any of these tests, that they may very likely end up with someone like yourself who's been with the Mayo Clinic for many years and has firsthand experience on the historical development of some of these tests. So we're very fortunate to be surrounded by experts in their fields who know the ins and outs of the offerings we provide here at Mayo Clinic Laboratories. So today we're discussing IBDP2. This is one of several inflammatory bowel disease tests offerings here at the Mayo Clinic Lab in, within the portfolio. And this test plays a part in assisting to confirm IBD and non-IBD determinations. From my understanding, this is not a new test with Mayo Clinic Laboratories. It was actually live for some years and then was taken down for a period of time and was relaunched. Can you tell us a little bit about the test and also explain why it was unavailable for a period of time? So sure, so our inflammatory bowel disease panel, for this testing, we offer two types of tests. We have antibodies against the Saccharomyces cerevisiae, both IgA and IgG isotypes. And we offer the antibodies to neutrophils, which is what we call the, P, the ANCA or the P-ANCA testing. And this stands for anti-neutrophil cytoplasmic antibodies. And these are also antibodies that are found in some patients who have inflammatory bowel disease. So as you mentioned that this is not a new test. In fact, it's a test that's been available for, for many years. We had offered it in the past, um, again, the same markers, the Saccharomyces cerevisiae and the, and the ANCA. But at one point, we, we have some, what I consider to be fairly robust quality measures in the laboratory, which allow us to monitor the performance of this testing over time. And at one point, we became concerned with our Saccharomyces cerevisiae antibody testing. Specifically, we noticed that we were seeing shifts in the frequency of positive and negative results on this testing. 
So we contacted the manufacturer of the reagents that we use for our testing. And we had a lot of conversations with them. We had a lot of cohorts of patients that we tested. We tested control cohorts. We asked for multiple lots of reagents from the manufacturer. And it was a lot of effort for the lab. I had a lot of our technical specialists and laboratory staff involved in this. They were really going above and beyond, I considered, to try to figure out what was going on with these reagents. In the end, we just came to the conclusion that the reagents that we were now getting from the manufacturer were not the same as the reagents that we had originally validated. The clinical performance characteristics of the tests were not where we needed them to be. And because the assays from different manufacturers, they're really not standardized. It wasn't an easy change for us to just say, well, one day we're going to test on one reagent and the next day we'll switch to another manufacturer. When we knew that the clinical performance wasn't where we wanted it to be, we made the very difficult decision to take the test down. We knew that it would impact our, our patients. We knew it would impact our clients, but we thought we had no choice at that point. So we took the test down. We then entered a time period where we began validating reagents from a different manufacturer. That did take quite a while because not only did we do an analytical validation, but we also did some studies and some clinical cohorts to really make sure the testing was, was where we thought it should be. This took us a little while and that's why the test was unavailable for a period of time. And then once that validation was all complete for the Saccharomyces testing, then we were able to bring it up as in what we're calling a new panel, even though it is essentially the same as the previous panel, just with a different set of reagents from a different manufacturer. Thank you for explaining that, because I think there's really something to be said for the methods used at the Mayo Clinic and the high level of standards that we hold to make sure that the results that we provide are accurate on a much tighter scale than perhaps some of the other labs. I know there must have been a lot of effort and a lot of time put in ensuring that even if it means taking the test down and maybe even some financial loss for the Mayo Clinic, that we get it right. That was definitely our thinking. We want to make sure that when we provide a result to a patient, the patient can rely on that result, the physician can rely on that result. You're right. I mean, it was not an easy decision to make. We knew it would have a major impact on our clients, on our patients, but you know, in the end, we just did not have high confidence in the results that we were obtaining for our Saccharomyces testing and felt that it was better to have the testing unavailable rather than to provide results that we were having difficult interpreting ourselves. That makes perfect sense. So now getting back to the test, this test is not considered the first line go-to in IBD testing. It's generally not ordered on its own, from what I understand. As I understand it, it's more of an adjunct or a confirmative test that's used. Can you please expand a little bit on that? Sure. So inflammatory bowel disease can be a, a difficult diagnosis. And I think it's difficult because we don't have really good diagnostic laboratory tests. To put this in perspective, I always like to compare and contrast IBD with celiac disease. Celiac disease is another autoimmune GI condition we know a lot about what causes celiac disease. There are very clear treatments for celiac disease. We know the genetic risk factors for celiac disease. And we have very good laboratory serology testing for celiac disease, almost to the point that some individuals would consider certain autoantibody serology tests almost can be considered diagnostic for celiac disease in the absence of any other information that you might have. 
In contrast, with inflammatory bowel disease, we really don't know what the environmental causative agent of inflammatory bowel disease is. We certainly know a lot about the genetics of IBD, but we, we don't have a strong genetic marker, right? There are a lot of contributing genes that lead to the development of IBD, but there's really not one strong genetic marker. Along the same veins, we don't have a strong diagnostic serology test for IBD in comparison to what we have for celiac disease. So as a result, IBD becomes very much a clinical diagnosis along with imaging and pathology results as well. And for most patients, this is how the, that evaluation is done. Now we do have a good marker that is useful as a first line test for inflammatory bowel disease, and that would be our fecal calprotectin. It is becoming more accepted that fecal calprotectin is a great screen for individuals with what appears to be an inflammatory GI condition. For those individuals, an initial test with fecal calprotectin is a good first step. It can tell you whether there is inflammation within the GI system. Now it is not a specific diagnostic marker for any individual disease, but it can differentiate the inflammatory from non-inflammatory conditions. And if you have an inflammatory marker that is elevated, it could put you down the path of IBD, but it also could be other conditions such as celiac disease. There's some evidence to suggest that it's maybe even elevated in malignant conditions. Regardless of the specific GI condition, it at least is telling you that there's some kind of inflammation that's going on there. And further testing would be necessary to really identify the specific cause of that inflammation. And this is kind of where we, I think, see the diagnostic process happening for IBD, which is to kind of do that first screen for fecal calprotectin. If it's elevated, do some of those imaging, some of those pathologic analyses. And then if that still is not giving you the information you need, and there is a suspicion for IBD, then the IBDP2, our inflammatory bowel disease panel, may be a, a helpful in those patients. But as you said, it really is only a subset of, of these individual, of these patients. So thanks for explaining that. So, and based on that response, who exactly is this test recommended for? And when would you say is the best time for the patient to have the test performed? Do they always have this done after a calprotective test or are they ordered at the same time in some cases? Is there ever a time when you would order both together or is it always one first and then the other? Honestly, I think in a perfect world, I would suggest that fecal calprotectin comes first because in individuals where the fecal calprotectin is, is normal, which we, where we're, we're not seeing an inflammatory condition, then those individuals really don't need any kind of the autoimmune serology testing. Even if the calprotectin is elevated, I really think the next step is probably more imaging, maybe having a, a biopsy taken even before you would do the serology testing. Because again, the serology testing, I don't think helps a whole lot in establishing a diagnosis of inflammatory bowel disease. It's really more useful in a subset of patients where the physician is fairly certain IBD is the correct diagnosis, but maybe it's a little bit unclear as to, is it ulcerative colitis? Is it Crohn's disease? In which case, those are the individuals where I think the IBDP2 is going to be, have the most relevance. If you have a patient where the physician says to me, I did the fecal calprotectin, it was elevated, I did imaging analysis, and it's ulcerative colitis, then I say, then you're done and you really don't need the serology testing for, that, for those patients. 
Now, that being said, the test was developed for use with all patients in mind. You just mentioned some of the details behind the results, but some of the studies around the markers used in this test have shown some interesting data around the results being more highly predictive in determining Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis in pediatric patients. Is that something you're familiar with? Yes, we've seen some of those publications. There was a very nice meta-analysis that was published a few years ago now, but I think the data is still relevant. And I think that meta-analysis highlights why the IBD serology testing um, has some limitations. And what that meta-analysis showed, which is really that in adult cohorts, the testing has limited sensitivity. In other words, the, the serology testing is not abnormal in all patients who have IBD, so it, has, it, it doesn't pick up all patients. The specificity isn't too bad. So if you get a positive result, there it's more likely to be associated with either ulcerative colitis or, or Crohn's disease. But that's really the limitation of the testing is that it, it has not great sensitivity. And so if you use it as kind of your diagnostic test, the concern is that you're going to miss a number of patients because they, sh they will be negative because of this limited sensitivity. They also, in that meta-analysis, looked at a papers where pediatric patients were studied, and they found actually that the testing performed a little bit better in the pediatric population. The specificity was better. However, sensitivity was still a problem. So again, in pediatrics, I still don't think it reaches that bar where you would use it in all of the patients. However, I do realize in, in pediatric patients, sometimes serology testing may be desirable you know, when you might not even use it in an adult. So I think we accept that in pediatrics, we're a little more flexible on how we use the testing, but I still think it's important for physicians to understand the limitation of the testing, which is that even though the specificity is pretty good, the sensitivity does have some limitations. Beyond this test, what other tests are physicians ordering to help with the IBD determination? Tell us a little bit more about some of the other test options that you're familiar with on the market and how ours might be different. And how does the Mayo Clinic test compare in efficiency or cost, for example? If we look at the guidelines that have been published for both ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease, both of these published guidelines acknowledge the limitation of serology testing. They specifically highlight Saccharomyces and the neutrophil-specific antibodies, the ANCA testing, as the serology that seems to have the most utility for the evaluation of patients when you're trying to differentiate between the ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. But they definitely do not advocate its use as a diagnostic test for all patients with IBD. Now, there are some laboratories where there is expanded serology testing that is available. Some laboratories offer um, inflammatory markers as well, things like CRP and other types of inflammatory markers, and then genetic testing as well. Now, the difficult thing with genetic testing is that even though we know very clearly that IBD is a, is a disease that has some genetic component to it, meaning that there are genetic risk factors that make individuals predisposed to developing inflammatory bowel disease, those genetic markers are incredibly complex and it is very difficult to understand how to use this information diagnostically because you may have individuals who have multiple genetic markers that put them at risk for IBD, but they never developed that disease in their lifetime 
Whereas you may have other individuals who do develop IBD, but yet don't have any of the known genetic markers that we know about. So it becomes very difficult to use that information diagnostically or to help you understand what might be going on with a given patient. Now, the expanded serology testing is, is something a little bit different. As I've said before, you know, we use the Saccharomyces antibodies, we use the PANCA testing, but there is some evidence to suggest that patients with IBD do develop autoantibodies against other organisms. They may develop some other autoantibodies as well. And are those additional markers useful diagnostically? I think most studies have shown that they probably aren't. Um, they, again, don't have the sensitivity that we really need to make them useful as a, as a diagnostic tool. However, there is some data to suggest that individuals who have expanded repertoires of these autoantibodies may be at risk for more severe disease. I think that it's that tiered approach. You may test your patients initially, maybe only with the Saccharomyces and the, and the ANCA testing. If that's negative or positive, depending on what you're trying to use it for differentiating between ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease, that, that may be sufficient. But if you have an individual who may look like they're at risk for more severe disease, they have some other risk factors, and you want to know more about their autoantibody serology testing, maybe some of those expanded serology panels might be helpful for those patients. But again, I don't think it's every patient, and, and I think, but there can be some utility to that testing if, you, if you're thinking about it as a more prognostic marker rather than diagnostic. So we've discussed quite a bit of information. How does all of this play into patient care? What I would again stress is that inflammatory bowel disease, ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease are really clinical diagnoses where the physician takes into account the clinical picture, some imaging studies, maybe pathology to make a diagnosis. And for most patients, this is enough. We do have inflammatory bowel disease serology testing, which can be useful in a small subset of patients to help when it's difficult to differentiate between ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. There are some applications in the pediatric population as well. For most patients, the, the clinical evaluation is really the most important part of their diagnostic journey and the serology testing useful in that subset of patients. So to recap, it sounds like the physicians benefit from this particular test by being ensured of highly accurate results and being given room to determine what those results mean based on individual treatment plans versus having a lab tell them the results equate to a definitive yes or no, the patient does or does not have Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. It sounds like the lab benefits by having lower associated costs by not including unnecessary additions to the test. And most importantly, it sounds like the patient benefits from using a test with fewer unnecessary markers run, which may add unnecessary noise to the situation. Is there anything else you'd like to add to those who may be considering ordering the IBDP2 test through Mayo Clinic Laboratories or maybe did in the past, but have switched labs and are still on the fence about coming back to MCL for this test? I think that we do try to ensure the highest quality of our testing. That was why we had to take the test down for a bit. We do have confidence in the results that we are currently reporting. And I would say too, that if you ever get results that you don't understand, that you have questions about, if your physician is confused by results or it doesn't make sense with what they're seeing clinically in the patient, 
we are always here to help answer those questions, myself and my colleagues. We do try to provide that service when it's needed. Thank you so much, Dr. Snyder, for taking time today. We really appreciate you sharing your knowledge and insight on the importance of this test. And we look forward to having you on again to discuss more Mayo Clinic laboratory testing that helps improve the lives of our patients. Well, thank you very much for having me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for tuning in to Answers from the Lab. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and don't forget to tune in every Thursday and every other Tuesday.